G'day again, everyone. I'm going to pray for us now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement it is to hear from our brothers and sisters in Christ and for the way uh, hearing about how you are at work in their life can be such a great joy and encouragement to us. And we, think that we, we pray that we will all think hard about that area of service and how we can be involved in building up our brothers and sisters here in our church family. But now, Father, help us as we turn to this uh, respectable sin and neglected virtue. Help us to have honest hearts that let your word challenge us. Uh, but we pray that we might also be encouraged as we remember that we do not earn our salvation, but in fact, even our respectable sins are washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, we started our series on respectable sins and neglected virtues. Uh, and by the way, thank you for uh, feedback slips and emails last week. Uh, it's nice to hear when people find a sermon helpful, but also I love getting questions and uh, there are a lot out of last week, which is excellent. So thank you for that. But I want to say last week's talk laid the groundwork for this series. So if you didn't hear last week's talk, I really want to strongly encourage you to, uh, to go and listen to the podcast, get it on the website and, uh, and listen to last week's talk. And there is one point I made last week that I just want to really, really stress again. And remember I said this, we must always remember that the starting point is grace. The starting point is grace. Please remember, we are not thinking for this five or six weeks about putting off sins and putting on virtues to earn our salvation or, or to somehow make God love us. No, we're thinking about these things because we have already been loved by God if we have put our trust in Jesus. We've already been declared righteous. It's that point we saw over and over again in Romans. Romans chapter 5, it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. It's while we were still sinners that God showed his love towards us. And so now, as dearly loved children of God, as the new people God has, has saved us to be, now we try to put off sin and put on righteousness. I just want you to never forget that as we get into this next four or five weeks and think about individual sins we all struggle with. Uh, I never want us to, to think that we're doing this in any way to earn something. We're doing it because of what God has done for us. In fact, here's the interesting thing. Do you know a person who has not come to know Jesus cannot please God? People really struggle with that. So how, can you, how can you say that? But, but, but a person who has not come to know Jesus, you can make all the effort in the world to put off sin and put on virtues, you will not meet God's standards. You can't. And more than that, you, you actually, what you're doing won't please him because it's not driven by recognising Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. So it's only as we come to, know, come to have faith in Jesus that we're washed clean and forgiven, we're given a new heart, and only then things we do because of our faith in Jesus, only then can we please God. So please, make sure you don't forget that. Uh, as we think about putting off sin over the next five weeks. The starting point is grace. But now, for the next five weeks, we are thinking about five respectable sins and their corresponding neglected virtues. So five areas of sin we perhaps don't take as seriously as, as God might want us to, and five areas of godliness that I don't think we treasure as much as God wants us to. And so for this, for this first one, I thought we should start with what I believe is the number one besetting sin of St. George North Anglican Church. That is a big call, isn't it? I, I, I'm claiming to be a prophet at this point. 
I don't often claim to be a prophet, but I'm claiming to be a prophet. I know the heart of every person right across all our congregations from five-year-olds to 99-year-olds, and this is your besetting sin. And it's my besetting sin. Now, you might think of all sorts of sins when I say that, and chances are we will deal with some of those sins in this series. And I think if you ask people outside the church that Phil's going to talk about the besetting sin of, of our generation, of our, of our, they, they say, oh, he's going to talk about sex. He's going to talk about pornography because that's what the church talks about. No, hands down, by so far, the others are not even in the same stadium, in the same ballpark. The besetting sin of St George North, including of its senior minister, is greed. Now, at this point, you might say, wow, is Phil saying that we're a particularly greedy church, that that St George North is a particularly greedy church? No, I'm not saying that. In fact, in my experience, ours is an incredibly generous church. Ours is a wonderfully generous church. Now, I believe this is our besetting sin because it is the besetting sin of every church I'm aware of in Sydney. And it's the besetting sin of every Christian who lives in this modern Western world. Because we just live in a world that is driven by greed. Our whole society is built on greed. Our whole society, we're told, actually, we've got to keep the economy going, so you've got to buy more. And when the government's worried that the economy's slowing down, what do they do? They give everyone a check and say, go buy a plasma TV. Because the economy's got to keep expanding. The way we just chase after more and more and more, even when we already have so much... I just wonder, I wonder if people from even 40 years ago came and looked at us now, looked at our society in Sydney now, I think they'd be horrified by what we think we need to live. And I think they'd be horrified if they came into the church and saw what Christians think we need to live. The way we obsess over real estate, the the way we upgrade devices when we have a perfectly good one that's already working fine, We are just part of a society and a system that has normalised greed. And so as Christians who live in this world, that greed shapes us. It's just a reality. It's just part of the the air we breathe, the the, the world we we live in, the atmosphere. Do you remember last week I said one of our problems is that as Christians, we think being godly is just being 20% better than the world? Remember, I made up the percentage, but the point stands. The, just being a bit better than the world. Remember how I talked about that's like saying you're aiming for Cape York and then thinking I've done pretty well because I've got to Hornsby. That, that sort, of, sort of idea. Because our world is so far removed from Jesus and his standards. This one, we're, it's like we're, we're in Hobart on greed compared to our world. And I really do fear that this is our, the modern Western Christian, this is our spiritual blind spot. Far more than lots of the sins that get all the attention and that people think we talk about all the time. Having said that, it's not just our culture and our time, even if we've taken greed and normalised it like no others before us have ever done, this has actually been the sin of every generation. So even if the person from 40 years ago would be horrified, the person from 40 years before them would be horrified about them and and so on and so forth. Uh, This has been the sin of every generation And the reason you know that is because Jesus talked about it so much. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed just how much Jesus talks about money and possessions? Nearly every time he wants to make a point about genuine faith or genuine repentance, he says, let's talk about money. 
Or he tells a story about money or about possessions or all that sort of thing. So just see, if you go do an exercise this week, go back and just read through one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, from the beginning to end, and just make a note every time one of Jesus' stories or one of his interactions is about money or possessions, and, and you will fill a page. So just think about it. Zacchaeus, you know, the guy in the tree who gets down and Jesus welcomes him in, and as he comes to faith in Jesus, what does Jesus then say to him? He says, well, now go back four times, go back and pay four times what you stole because real faith and repentance will impact your hip pocket. Or the rich young man who comes to Jesus says, I'm ready to follow you, Jesus. Jesus says, well, if you're going to follow me, go and sell everything you own. Give it to the poor. I go on and on. Think of the number of stories just in the Sermon on the Mount. Think of the, the parable of the rich fool, the story of the, the lady with her last coin in, in, in the temple. Time and time again, Jesus says, what you do with your money and your possessions is the clearest insight into the reality of your heart. What you do with your money and your possessions shows the reality of where your heart is. And it shows the reality of your faith and repentance. But despite the amount of the Bible devoted to it, Greed seems to be one of those acceptable sins uh, amongst Christians. And I wonder if that's because greed is really, really hard to define. So it's really, really actually hard to say, I'm being greedy at that point, or you're being greedy. It's different to other sins. If you think about it, I know when someone's drunk. And I can say, drunkenness is wrong, repent. You, you know, when someone says an angry word, we can say, hey, angry word, wrong, you know, repent. It, it, many sins you can just see in that way. Greed's not like that. It's much more subtle, isn't it? And, and more than that, this is that sin, like I talked about last week, where we're very good at diagnosing it in other people. We're very, very good at, at, at looking at the, the, the rich list and saying, oh, so greedy. Where am I going next on my holiday? You see, see how we're very, very good at judging it in others, but not necessarily good at seeing it in our own heart. One man's luxury is another man's necessity. You see, how do you answer that question, how much money do I need? I don't know. How, how do you answer, how big a house do I need? How many holidays should I take? Where, where should I go? What type of car do I need? They're not questions the Bible gives a yes or no answer to, like drunkenness or swearing or, or, so, or sins of that sort. See, and it can't do that because greed is about your heart and it's about your attitudes. But the reality is Jesus makes radical calls in this area on those who would follow him. Uh, and I really want us to start us thinking today. That's why I'm, I'm not aiming to have clear-cut application out of today to give you here is the amount of money you should... That's not how I'm what I mean to do. Uh, I want us just to think what would it look like to not just be a bit better than our greedy world in this area. Because it's thinking, what would it look like to be more than a bit better, if you like? What would it look like to actually take Jesus seriously in this area? Which all goes to say we need to think about greed, but we also need to think of the other side of the coin, contentment and generosity. So let's get going. You'll need your outline to follow along. It'll also be coming up uh, on the screen, some headings and Bible verses. Uh, and the, I want to start by thinking about the Bible's view of money and possessions. Uh, and the first thing to say is it's really important to see money and possessions are not evil in and of themselves. Sometimes Christians have misquoted our Bible reading from before as saying money is the root of all evil. Uh, and so Christians have said, if money is the root of all evil, let's get rid of it. 
You know, we, we should withdraw from the world, take a vow of poverty, and, and some religious orders have done that. That actually started a couple of hundred years after Jesus, where, where men first, but then women as well, said, must get totally rid of money, it's the root of all evil, we're going to go out in the desert, and the, the, the most extreme of them would live up a pole on their own. They then needed other people with money to go and buy them food, to give them food up on the top of the pole, but, but the point was they totally removed themselves from the world. I don't think the Bible calls for that. So the Bible actually has two prongs to its view of money and possessions. And the first is this, that God gives us his creation, including money and possessions, to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. So right back at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, God says, this creation is good. This creation is good. What I have made is good. And God says it's to be enjoyed with thanksgiving, but within the limits set by my word. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. So you see there is that the, the right attitude to God's creation is not to shun it and withdraw like a monk into a monastery. Uh, no, the right attitude is to give thanks to God for it, to enjoy it, but to do that within the limits that God's word sets, which we're going to come to in a little while. So it's not inherently wrong to own a house. It's not inherently wrong to go on a nice holiday. In fact, it's a good thing. It's, it's not wrong to, to enjoy a nice meal. It's right to receive God's gifts with thanksgiving. That's the first prong. But I have a funny idea. Most of us don't need to hear that side of the coin. I've not met many Christians here at St. George North who struggle to enjoy God's good creation. In fact, I, I don't think I've met one. I think most of us have got that one down pat. We're pretty convinced God's creation is good and we like enjoying it. So I don't think that's the side of the coin we need a, a sermon series on. Uh, I think most modern Christians need the other prong, the other strand of the Bible's teaching, and that is that those good gifts from God, and especially money, can very quickly become dangerous and lead us away from God. And this is just such a massive theme of the Bible. I could have picked so many Bible passages. So for instance, Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount, if we put it up on the screen, Matthew chapter 6, he says, Do not collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. And then he goes on a couple of verses later. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think that's one of the most profound verses on, the, on this topic, that verse 21 there, because uh, it works both ways. See, what you spend your money on shows where your heart is. If you're building things here on earth, your, your heart is here on earth. If you're, if you're building things that will last for eternity, that's where your heart is. But, but it sort of works the other way also, that where you focus your attention, your heart follows. See, it works both directions. But Jesus goes on. He says, No one can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. It's amazing how Jesus just throws out truth bombs. You know what I mean? Like, as you read the Gospels, unless you are so hard of heart, you can't get through a page of any of the Gospels without Jesus putting an explosion under you, can you? He just, he just does it, just throws out these truths and you hear them and they annoy you a bit and you struggle with it, but even as it's annoying you and you struggle with it, you know what he's saying is absolutely true. 
See, we know deep down, even as we hoard our possessions, we know in our heart we can't take it with us when we die. We know what he's saying is right. We, we know that our houses, our holidays, our, our, our cars, our, our, our share portfolios, our bank accounts, we know they aren't really important. We all know that. I think even people in our world who don't know Jesus know that. They know that in the end they, they come to nothing. But we also know our hearts and how even though we know it, we're never satisfied. We know that often our desire is not for heavenly things, it's for just a nicer house or for the next iPhone. We, we know all too often what we long for is not to be with our Lord, what we long for even more is the next experience or whatever it is we're chasing. And we know in our hearts Jesus is right in what he says about the two masters there. We know that. And we know we can't have two masters. But even so, we think, maybe I'm the person to try. Maybe I can. Even though I know it's not right, I know Jesus is my Lord, I know heaven is my home, but I really like nice stuff. See, human sin is a really funny thing. What we do is we take wonderful good gifts of God, wonderful gifts that show his love and his generosity, the good things he's given us, we take them, and instead of receiving them with thanksgiving, but sobriety... Thanksgiving, but, but, but circumspection, if you like. We let them consume us and drive us, and we let them take God's place at the centre of our lives. That's what Paul means when he says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. He says, For no one recognised this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and of God. There's so much in that little verse there. Notice how greed is seen as just as serious as sexual immorality, first of all. But the point I want us to really see is, he says, to be greedy is to be an idolater. To be greedy is to deny Jesus. It actually takes this to a whole other level, doesn't it? See, idolatry in the Old Testament is the worst of sins. To, to fail to worship God and instead give his glory to a thing made of stone or wood is the worst thing you could do. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, for many of us, our idols, the alternative gods we bow down before, are not little statues. They are money and wealth and real estate and experiences and free, just stuff. Brian Rosner, his great little book, Beyond Greed. I've recommended this book over the years several times and I'll recommend it again, Beyond Greed by Brian Rosie. You can get it from Matthias Media easily enough. I checked with one of the warehouse managers this morning and there's plenty of copies available. Uh, so I want to commend it to you. But he picks up on that verse and this is what he says. We'll go to it. He says, The most disturbing thing about the fact that greed is idolatry is that hardly anybody owns up to being a worshipper. Imagine the response of disbelief in the local church if it were revealed that the vast majority of its members were secretly worshipping other gods. Then he says, yet, if our analysis of the religion of money is right, the unthinkable may not be so far from the truth. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? Is it just so normal, the worship of money? Is it just so normal that we don't even realise that we're caught up in it? Next passage I want us to see, 1 Timothy 6, that we read before. Again, it'll come up on the screen. Here, the Apostle Paul is warning about that idolatry, about how easy it is to replace God with money. And this is what he says. We read this before. He says, But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, 
and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root, a root, of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. It's a really famous verse, isn't it? And as I said before, people misquote it. They love to say money is the root of all evil. No, it's, a, it's the love of money that is the problem and it's the root of all kinds of evil. Uh, not all evil, because I think pride and lust do a pretty good job as well. It's not just money. But don't let the fact that people overstate it take away from its power. The truth is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we know it's true. See at the end of the verse where he says people who want to be rich pierce themselves with many pains? You see, money tears people apart. That's what it does. If you have ever been in the horrible situation of where a family is contesting a will, you see what money does to, to relationships, the jealousy, the selfishness, the discord that soon follows. That, that's how money is a root of these other evils that come out. But the warning Paul is giving us here in this verse is much bigger than that. He's saying that desire to be rich, greed, it doesn't just damage human relationships. It damages our relationship with our Heavenly Father. It damages our relationship with God more than any other thing. Earthly treasures, the desire for wealth, the desire for security in this life, more than anything else, they lead people to wander away from faith in Jesus. And again, we know this is true, don't we? Sadly, we've seen it in other people's lives, but we know it's true ourselves. We know how easily we get distracted from Jesus by the lure of money and possessions and, and just things in this world. We don't make a conscious decision to stop worshipping Jesus and switch to real estate or holidays or, or iPhones or whatever it is. They just slowly become the centre. They just slowly become the focus. See, as our comfort levels rise, almost universally, our zeal for serving Jesus cools. Our longing for heaven fades as we try and find our security more and more in this world. That joy, that contentment in the gospel gets replaced by a joy in things and a joy in experiences. Here's the thing. I think every Christian here this morning would say amen to everything I have said today. I think really I've just been quoting the Bible extensively, so I hope you, you would say um, amen. See, we all agree. Love of money, dangerous thing. Absolutely. We all agree. Don't want to be greedy. We all agree. The rich need to be really careful. <laughs> and there is the problem. No one thinks they are rich, do they? No one thinks they are rich. No one thinks they are greedy because there is always someone who has more than me. The people on the, those, those pages of the newspaper that I can never be bothered reading, so I don't know who they are. But you, you know what I mean. And as I said at the start, as Christians, we sometimes think, well, if I'm just a little less greedy and a little more generous than the rest of the world, then I'm okay. Instead of making our comparison point the radical attitude of Jesus to money and wealth. Brothers and sisters, the poorest amongst us are very, very rich. Compared to most people in the world today, the poorest people amongst us are some of the richest people in history. We need to think about all sorts of things the Bible raises. We've got all sorts of things we need to talk about and think about that the Bible raises in our lives. But I think this is one every Christian needs to think about. So what is the answer to this problem of greed? Well, the Bible gives a really simple answer. The opposite of greed 
is contentment in Christ and generosity. Contentment in Christ and generosity. The remedy to greed is actually trying to find our security, our meaning, our contentment in Jesus rather than in money and other things. And that will then flow out and show itself in generosity. We looked at Matthew 6 for the negative side before. I want to look at it again, but focus on the positive side. He says, Jesus says, Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, it's interesting. We can focus on the end of verse 20. That, ah, well, the treasures in heaven will last more. That's why I should focus on them. I should be greedy for treasures in heaven rather than the treasures that, that, that rust and so forth. That's no point. The point is verse 21. His point is where your treasure is shows where your heart is. And I think it, it, it works. I said this before. It works the other way as well. Where you try and put your treasure, your heart will then follow. So Jesus is saying, find your meaning in Christ, not in things of this world. Find your security in Christ, not in your house, not in your superannuation. Find your contentment in Christ. Find your joy in Christ, not in the next experience. Recognize that what matters is not this transitory and broken life. What matters is eternity. See, if we are people who have come to know Jesus, if we are people who found eternal life in him, what matters is our eternal home. Why accumulate wealth that will disappear in 10 or 20 or 50 years? Why accumulate so much wealth that when you hand it on to your children, it leads them away from the Lord? That's what a large inheritance does to children. Why accumulate wealth? Surely you want to accumulate heavenly treasures because that's where your heart is with your Lord Jesus. See, if you believe this life is all there is, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But if you know Jesus and you know him as your Lord and Saviour, live for eternity. Trust God to provide. He does provide. Trust him to do it. Be content with what he provides. And then that will work itself out in an attitude of contentment with much less than we actually think we need. We looked at 1 Timothy 6 already this morning. We read it before. We looked at a part of it. But now we saw the warning against the rich. Now I want to see the wonderful encouragement towards contentment. It says, but godliness with contentment is a great gain. See the irony in that? You think chasing riches is a great gain. He says, no, 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 no. Godliness with contentment, that's real gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. See, that's godliness. Being content that our needs are being met. Rather than always wanting and always wanting more, and always wanting all our wants to be fulfilled. But you can't manufacture contentment. If our heart is with Jesus in heaven, then contentment flows. If our, if our heart is focused here in this world, we, we will never be content. Now, what's the problem with all of this? Everyone wants laws to follow. Here's the problem, and this is what I said before, it's not like other sins. That's why this is going to be an inherently dissatisfying sermon this morning. Because I'm not going to give you and what I, my pharisaical heart, wants. You see, when do I cross the line into greed? Tell me. 
What is acceptable to spend on myself? Tell me. We're all Pharisees at heart. We want laws. Christianity is not about laws. Unlike the religions, a Christian is someone who has come to know Jesus, has been forgiven by Jesus, whose heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit. And so for the Christian, it's not about what must I do? Give me the line so I don't cross it. It's about getting our attitude and our heart right. Now, I think there are some decisions we make that frankly are very hard to ever justify. I think there are some decisions we make where you can say, that's like swearing, you've just sinned in the area of greed. You, you know when the person has a perfectly good iPhone, I don't know the numbers, I've got no idea, this is not my struggle, but the, the perfectly good iPhone 76 <laughs> and, and the iPhone 77 comes out and they're, they're buying it. There, there is no possible godly reason for that. It is greed. That, that's what it is. Or when we've got a perfectly massive 86-inch screen TV on our wall and the 89 inch comes out and we think I, I've got it that is greed don't pretend oh it's about the attitude Phil I've got a godly attitude that no no that is greed that's what it is our consumer society is built on greed but more often it's more subtle than that isn't it and sometimes two people might make exactly the same decision and one is driven by greed and the other not in that regard it's about attitudes but I think the other virtue is the remedy to greed and the way to create contentment. And that is generosity. Now, I'm not going to focus as much here because we're spending five or six weeks in our gospel teams in that book. We had a great time in our gospel team on Wednesday night. I led the study. The other people mightn't think so. But I, I thought we had a great time in our gospel team on, uh, on Wednesday night and we're looking forward to the rest of the series. So I want to encourage you, benefit from those studies. But here, as we focus on generosity just briefly, see, being radically generous is both the sign of true contentment and the way to create contentment. You see, if you truly believe God is good and that everything we have comes from him, we won't be anxious and we'll be content with what we have. And that will then show itself in the way we're then generous with what God has given us. The greedy person hoards what they have because they think it matters more. Godly contentment, a focus on eternity, will show itself in outlandish generosity because what do I need this stuff for? But also I think God encourages us to be generous to teach us to be content. That's why the Bible is so adamant about people giving generously from their first fruits. The idea of, of not saying, how much do I need to satisfy everything I've got and now I'll work out a bit from my leftovers. The Bible says, no, 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 no. Generosity is working it out from the beginning, being sacrificially generous, because that then makes you trust God. It makes you content. You see, when we set aside a generous proportion to God before anything else, God uses that to teach us trust and contentment. When we just give from the leftovers, we're no better than a non-Christian who supports the Heart Society or the Royal Lifesavers or whatever other charities you can think of. I think that's the, the encouragement of those great verses in 2 Corinthians. We'll bring, bring them up on the screen. Where Paul says, remember this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you. So that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. 
See, when it says there, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Sadly, people misuse that verse to say something far less significant than it's actually saying. So we'll misuse that to teach a prosperity gospel. If you just give more to church, God will make you wealthier. And, and so, that, you know, you've heard of the prosperity gospel that sadly is very common. Saying something much more wonderful than that. What, what we reap is contentment. What we reap is joy. What we, that's what generosity does. When we are radically generous, cheerfully radically generous, you reap incredible things. You actually work out, I don't need as much and I can find joy in so much less and I, and I have contentment that means I'm, I'm free to find joy in how my generosity has supported other people. See, if we believe God is good and everything we have comes from him, we're happy to sacrificially give and then trust that God will bless us as we grow to be more like Jesus. See, when we sow generously, the action itself teaches us contentment. But I'll leave that for us to explore more in our gospel teams over the next few weeks. As we close, what are we to do in the light of this respectable sin and neglected virtue? I said at the start, I really wanted just to get us thinking today, to start the ball rolling on this one. I'm not going to give you a list of here is how you must use your money or all that sort of thing, because the Bible doesn't do that. But I'm going to give you three quick-fire final thoughts. Firstly, we need to get serious about actually thanking God for how blessed we are. I think we actually need to get properly serious. This is actually the first study in those generosity studies in our gospel teams. We need to get properly serious about actually recognising how blessed we are and thanking God for it. We need to stop thinking all we have is ours and actually seeing for what it is, a blessing from God to be used for his glory. We need to get serious about having an eternal perspective rather than being so caught up in this world. The reality is the things we idolise will just burn away when Christ returns. Second thing, tied to that, we just need to question ourselves and our motives honestly and seriously about our use of money. I'm amazed how many Christians just take the world's financial advice for their financial decisions. The world is so far from Jesus. We've got to actually question our decisions. We may need to make sure we allow ourselves to feel the tensions that Jesus creates in us in our attitude to our money and possessions. My biggest concern is when I or other Christians just make decisions about money that look just like the decisions people who don't know Jesus would make. See, let's get serious about the reality of our sin of greed. We all struggle with this sin, so look for it. Look for it in ourselves. Let's recognise it and, and repent of it. I speak here not in judgment, but in solidarity, if you like, as a fellow sinner. I need to repent in this area, and I think you do too. See, we need to actually start seriously asking, do I actually need all these things? Or have I just let the world tell me I need them? Do I actually need all these things? Do I need to spend this much money? Could I be more generous if I was a little more sober in my attitude to money? What are my motives? Why do I actually want this? Is it just because I want to keep up with the Joneses? Is it just because I'm like Pavlov's dog and the TV told me I need it, so now I need it? You know, is there a better way to use my money? Am I being generous with what God has given me or really am I more focused on what I want? See, there might be really good answers to those questions, but if we're not questioning ourselves, we don't feel the tension, I fear our hearts are hard. But my big and final point is, 
We really just need to work at finding contentment where we're meant to find it. We need to work at cultivating a heart that just finds contentment in Christ. See, our contentment should come from Jesus and then actually from our relationships with one another. When Jesus warns about the costs of following Jesus, when he warns about that you will give up mother and father, family and wealth and all sorts of other things, he says, you'll get it back though because you'll become a part of this wonderful thing, the family of God. See, too often we find our contentment and our joy in the things of this world. And when we do that, our joy in Christ fades, our joy in our brothers and sisters in Christ fades. We just need to be amazed by Christ. We just need to know Jesus better. And that will actually get our heart in the right place. And other things will follow. I'm going to let the book of Proverbs be the final word that was read to us before. Proverbs chapter 30, the last couple of verses we read, says this. It says, Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonour the name of my God. The prayer of wisdom for a Christian is give me neither poverty nor riches. Don't give me so much, God. Don't give me so much that I forget you. But don't please provide my needs. Don't leave me so little that, that I find myself tempted to steal and dishonour you in that way. That is the wise and godly attitude to money. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Shall we pray that God would give us hearts that reflect that wisdom? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know the reality of our hearts. We know that all too often we are driven by the things of this world, by greed or by seeking to find security in this life, rather than be driven by the fact that we are children of yours, that we are blessed by you so abundantly and our heart is in heaven. So Father, give us hearts that reflect your wisdom. Give us neither poverty nor riches, so that in some small way, we might show that we are seeking to follow the Lord Jesus in this area. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.